Welcome back, everyone. I hope you had a fabulous lunch and chance to connect with our beautiful spiritual friends. I am really proud to introduce um, this next panel. This is a really important discussion. Who is responsible for our misery? This is a panel where we, we will be exploring the concept of personal responsibility and the cultivation of pure qualities of mind. Joining us in person today, and I might invite up to the stage, is the phenomenal Aya Karunika, uh, someone I, I admire very much. Aya Karunika is currently the senior resident monastic at Santi Forest Monastery. She received her full ordination as a bhikkhuni in 2014 at Dharmasara Nuns Monastery in Western Australia, where she lived and trained for over a decade with Ajahn Hasapanya. Aya Karunika is a profound Dharma teacher. She is equally brilliant, courageous, skillful, and vastly compassionate. It is a great honor to have you here with us today, Aya Karunika. And, you know, as we're celebrating Aya Karunika, it's also important to acknowledge that it is um, World Bikuni um, Sangha, International Sangha Day. Um, and we're going to actually be talking more about that tomorrow. But I just wanted to make a, a special um, mention of the International um, Bikuni Day. And um, great. Anyway, on we must carry on. We are also joined today um, by Venerable Bhante Sanata Vihari, who is joining us online from Los Angeles in the United States. Venerable Bhante Sanata Vihari is a Mexican-American Theravadan monk at the Sarath Chandra Buddhist Center in North Hollywood. He represents a new generation of Spanish-speaking monastics. Venerable Bhante Sanata Vihari is also a US Air Force veteran. He served in the army for nine years before taking ordination in the Theravada tradition. He is also the author of Buddhism in 10 Steps. We are so honored to have you here with us today and we're looking forward to learning from your insights, Bhante. And finally, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by Ajahn Nisarano who is the senior monk at the New Newbury Buddhist Monastery outside of Melbourne. Ajahn Nisarano was ordained by Ajahn Brahm as a novice monk in 1997, and he took full ordination in the following year. He's also lived in Sri Lanka for a total of 13 and a half years. Eight of those years he spent in a cave on the side of a mountain. He has returned to Australia to teach, and he's teaching primarily at the Buddhist Society of Victoria. And I, and I know many of us here, experience Ajahn Nisarano's Dharma talks and teachings as extremely compassionate and heart-centered. We are so lucky to have you here with us today, Ajahn. So I've prepared a couple of questions just to get the um, discussion moving, and I might just change from my lectern position. Oh, thanks, Michael. Okay, and so I've got a couple of um, questions for our amazing panelists, um, but I also want to invite people online and also people in the audience to contribute um, questions. We can do that via roving microphone. And there's also, it's not so discreet, um, <laughs> but we have a red box here with um, pens and, and notepad if you want to actually come and write your question down, or we could pass that through the audience if you'd like to do that more discreetly. Um, so just to begin, esteemed panelists, how do you approach this very provocative panel question? Who is responsible for our misery? Aya Karunika, would you mind if we begin with you? Sure. <laughs> May I ask the audience here, is there anybody who has not had a miserable day in their lives? <laughs> oh, very lucky. Are you lucky or unlucky? <laughs> okay, that's good. <laughs> so, have you had difficult people in your life? Or is it just me? 
<laughs> All right. So when you have these difficult days or miserable days, have you felt that it's this difficult person or difficult situation? If I get rid of this person or situation, my life will be fantastic. Yeah, that's how you normally feel. How many of you have been successful in getting rid of those people? We have, right? What happened next? <laughs> Somebody even more difficult came into your life. Has that happened to you? It has happened to me. <laughs> and it keeps going, right? But have you ever looked into the situation much more deep? So I want to just give a little bit of a uh, understanding that I had after a while and then I related to the teachings of the Buddha later on and suddenly the light bulb went. So imagine a time when you have been in front of this so-called difficult person, right? Doing this thing that is very difficult or unfair, hurtful or harmful for you or for the others or for the world. And when this is happening, when you're receiving this, you know, with your eyes and with your ears, what is your response usually? Get a bit irritated, agitated. And when you start thinking this is not right, this is so bad, they shouldn't be doing like this. Do you relate to this kind of way of thinking? What happened inside your mind? Slowly did you feel heating up? Flames coming out of your ears? <laughs> and maybe if it goes on for a little longer, it turns into anger, right? Sometimes this has happened. And it could go on and on for a while even. Sometimes you have had enough of it and you want to forget about it, but it keeps coming up again. Has that happened to you? Yeah? So it feels like this difficult person has ruined my day. Just before this person turned up, I was peacefully minding my own business. Right? But now maybe there was another day that you thought, let me find out this person's doing all the time the same thing and causing me problems. Why is she or he doing like that? A different way to look at the person and the situation, different question, rather than just looking at and judging and complaining about it, asking the question why. And maybe you realize this person has a mental illness or has got simply wrong information or has a different worldview or something or the other. There's always a reason why people behave the way they do, right? When you ask that question, sometimes when you understand where they are coming from, we are not saying what they're doing is right or accepting that, but you understand why they're doing it. You understand that it is difficult for them as well. You can be sure anybody who's giving a hard time to another person is suffering enormously. And we have, we too have been the difficult person in other people's lives, right? Think about those times, how we were feeling, right? It was to get rid of our own suffering that we behaved in the way we did. So when we think like that, instead of anger, what comes up in your mind? Is it right to say compassion? You feel sorry, right? Oh my goodness, this person is going a hard time or they've got this condition or problem or misunderstanding or whatever. But when they act with their body, speech and mind the way they do, they are the owners of their own karma and they have to repay for that. Yet, and they are also suffering, is it nice? whenever we even snapped back at somebody, how do you feel in your mind? It's not pleasant, right? So let alone that, you know, if it is something really outright much more difficult, obviously the person has repercussions. It's hard for them. So when you think that way, instead of anger coming up, you have compassion coming up. Now, then who created the misery before when this person did the same thing? It's the way you attended, right? The way you attended before at that situation or the person, you felt miserable. Same person doing the same thing, you ask a different question, attend in a different way, you have compassion coming. So then who created your misery? 
yourself. But again, then it's not really in also yourself because we know we have a choice, but our choice is conditioned. So if our choices were conditioned by greed, hatred and delusion, which is most of the time it is, so it's a greed, hatred and delusion creating our misery, I suppose. Maybe we can discuss this. I'm just throwing it out to you for contemplation. And uh, if your choice has been conditioned by the Dhamma through wisdom practices, then you were relieved from that also with that. This is anyway how I am seeing it. Maybe it's not. Maybe we can have a discussion about it and ask the other panelists. Okay, beautiful response. Thank you so much. Karnika. Um, I'm yeah, that's so profound and deep. Um, I'm wondering um, what if Bhante Sanata Bahari would like to share his thoughts on on this question and maybe um, it, and respond to Aya Karunika as well and 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 the importance of compassion. Uh, I don't know what much more I can add to Aya's beautiful answer. It's exactly as Aya said it. Yes, indeed. Uh, but I'd just like to kind of maybe <laughs> rephrase it or give you another example to just kind of elaborate on what Aya already said. Um, so, you know, we're responsible for our own actions, right? Physical, verbal, and mental. And other beings, other, other people are responsible for their own uh, physical, verbal, and mental actions. So misery, what kind of action is that, right? Where does it arise? It's a mental action, right? And misery doesn't uh, uh, is not brought in by someone other person, but it arises through your own actions and your own mind. And as Aya said, it's also conditioned, right? So that action, that mental action, is conditioned by greed, hatred, and delusion. So we're the ones who are creating it. But you know, this uh, understanding of conditionality also empowers us, right? That things are conditioned, so then we can change those conditions. We can manage those conditions. We can manipulate those conditions. So when we notice that that unskillful uh, state has arisen, that unwholesome state like misery, then we're empowered. We're empowered through mindfulness and compassion to change it and to make it otherwise and to respond in a skillful way in which we don't uh, perpetuate the cycle of misery and suffering in other beings, right? So really, I, in a way, it's, it's, it's a beautiful quality that, that we have to be able to recognize the unwholesome and recognize the wholesome. And not also fall into this kind of um, self-blame, right? Sometimes as Buddhists, we're like, well, I shouldn't feel any unwholesome mountain states, right? I shouldn't feel misery. I shouldn't feel anger. Well, you can't really help it because we've been uh, cultivating these states for many lives, right? They're coming from the past, from thousands and millions of lives, countless lives. And even in this very life, we can see when we've entertained these kind of thoughts in the past. So of course, they're going to arise. Of course, misery is going to arise. Of course, anger is going to arise. Of course, Whatever you don't like is going to arise. And that's okay. But what do we do when it does arise, right? What do we do? And as Aya says, we can respond with compassion, which is such a beautiful thing. And I don't think I can really add anything more than that. Beautiful. Thank you so much, uh, Bhante Sanata Bahari. Um, and, and for also that mes important message about um, self-compassion. And that's a challenge for so many of us. And... I want to throw to Ajahn Nisarano, um, really keen to hear your, your thoughts on this um, topic. Hello, very nice to be at the uh, Meta Convention uh, this, this weekend, and also to celebrate the establishment of the Bhikkhuni Sangha, which we did yesterday, the full moon of uh, the full moon uh, that we just had. So I just like to, when I saw this uh, question, I thought, wow, what a fantastic question. It's a real whopper of a question. It's a big one. Um, and uh, who's responsible for our misery? I think when I read that, the natural flow of it is either they are, somebody else, some situation in our life, our partner, our uh, work, our work colleagues, whoever it is, they are responsible. And, but also the other option with this question, who's responsible for our misery is, I am, I am responsible. I am to blame. And I think both of these responses really tie into what I call the blame game, just which is an enormous waste of time, really. 
It's not seeing the problem, actually, when we blame ourselves or we blame others. What we, uh, what we need, I think, to cultivate when we uh, have these experiences of misery, which we're all going to encounter, it's a great teacher. <laughs> Dr. Ayakima, uh, one of my uh, very important teachers, used to say, it's the best teacher. And it's hard to believe that when we're going through hard times, just to remember that. But why is that? It's because it, it pushes us to ask, well, what is responsible for my, our misery or my misery? What is responsible? And it's changing the focus, very different focus. Because if we look very closely with the question, who's responsible for our misery? I think in that question, we had the answer already. It's this who. <laughs> I think this is a big problem. This sense of self, this, these different personalities and characters that we create in our lives. And so this very much coupled with that strong, uh, of course, I think most people know the, the second noble truth, the cause of our misery. What is that? It's wanting things to be a particular way, expecting them to be a particular way, wanting us ourselves to be a particular way and expecting others to be in a particular way. This is the cause of our situation, cause of our misery. So just to change the focus, because if we say who's responsible for our misery, it's like that simile the Buddha has, uh, gave, isn't it, of the man that's uh, shot with an arrow and he says, I'm not having this arrow removed, no way, until I know who fired it, what clan they were from, and all the details about this person and about the arrow itself. And the Buddha says, this person will have died before they know the answer to that. And they haven't addressed the problem, the misery they're experiencing. This is what we focus on, the misery. What is it teaching me? What is this suffering teaching me? What is coming up from within me um, that is responding to this um, situation? So this is, to me, a very helpful thing to look at what is. And when we look at what is, we are actually able to look more at what's really happening. We step back a little bit to look at what's really happening, what's coming up for me. Why is it coming up for me? And to use, we have much more access to our wisdom or intelligence on that occasion. So this is what I would say, you know, when I saw that question, that's the first thing I thought, what is responsible for our misery? And that, as I, I Karunika is rightly putting out, is a very rightly mentioned, is a conditioned response. And what is it a conditioned response from? The Dhamma. And a lot of our conditioning is not from Dhamma, it's from our past lives from our um, defilements, uh, from all these different sources of conditioning. So it's, I think this is a very valuable way of looking at experiences. What is responsible for my misery, the suffering I'm feeling, the um, difficulties I'm experiencing? So that's what I would say about this question of who's responsible for our misery. It's a great question because it immediately challenges me. <laughs> Really good. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ajahn Isarano. And and that is really, I'm very moved by, of course, you know, we have such incredible Dharma teachers on this panel and the depth of your knowledge is very palpable. My question is, um, you know, for many, for many lay people as well, um, and maybe people who, who haven't developed the depth of, of teaching and experience as, as you have, you know, experiences of violence, abuse, injustice, grief and loss, um, discrimination, and, and of course, anyone having a really a bad day, you know, um, that the notion of a self-created suffering um, feels quite out of reach for a lot of people. So I'm wondering how you, as immense, wonderful teachers of the Dharma, um, can on the one hand share the depth of knowledge of, of your teachings and your practice and, and also what you know is possible on the path, that you know that the path leads to the end of suffering. How do you hold that and attend 
to that real suffering and injustice that people experience. Um, I won't pick any, on anyone to answer that, but uh, feel welcome to jump in. And please let me know, that was a little long-winded, so if you'd like me to clarify, happy to. <laughs> Could you just rephrase the question again? That would be lovely. Thank you. Um, oh, and we've got some more questions. Thank you, John. Oh, yes, yes. Just I'm really, yeah, really struck by the depth of your understanding of the Dharma and that mm. the practice leads to the end of suffering. And, and so you, your practice is so developed that you have great insight into that, insights into that. And I'm also wondering how you attend to um, people that you meet on the path, um, lay practitioners in particular, particular or people who are not Buddhists and um, you know their their experiences of acute suffering of violence and injustice grief and loss and discrimination and how some of these concepts feel a little bit may feel to them quite out of reach you know um, does that is that a bit clearer yes that, that is Thank yes because I think yeah I think sometimes when we talk about karma and responsibility for the uh, results that we experience in this life, it can come across to people as, well, they're blaming me. You know, they're saying it's my fault that I'm experiencing this injustice or, or what this discrimination or whatever it is they're experiencing. Um, and of course, that is not the point, as I mentioned, really. The point is to look at what we're experiencing and to, for me, you know, and this is part of my, I feel this is how my practice has developed, is really having that kindness and friendliness towards a lot of these negative emotions that come up. Um, just to, to not try and push them away, like uh, uh, Karunika was mentioning, just to, to, to be with them, just be friendly be kind, allow them to be, experience, you know, the experience them as they are with no wish to get rid of them. And this is what I would say for anybody that's experienced injustice, discrimination, or all of these other experiences that are difficult in life. And the worst thing with these things is that we feel it's been so unfair and it, it probably has been very unfair and very difficult for that person so to have that uh, compassion for themselves is very very important caring for themselves being kind and as i say being kind and friendly to these negative emotions that are coming up uh, realizing that these are you know just temporary phenomena that we can be and allowing them to be can allow them to dissolve so this this way of relating to oneself is very important, something that comes through the four supreme emotions, as I, I came would call this loving kindness, this compassion, joy with others and equanimity. It comes through um, with, with these qualities, we can uh, deal with our own suffering and the suffering of others too. So this is, this is how I would respond to it uh, in, in these terms, just with this real development of um, wholesome, uh, these wholesome qualities within this loving kindness, compare, uh, compassion, caring is very, very important, self-caring. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you so much, Ajahn. Yes, I don't know. I, I, Karunika, you look like you were going to respond. To... Sure. So, um, I, yeah, what, what uh, Ajahn Isarano said is a very, very good approach. And uh, that's uh, possible to do at times. But uh, sometimes what I have felt, this is my personal experience, we can know the technique. I know the technique, <laughs> what to do. <laughs> But trying to do it at times successful, at times not successful. So then I wonder why can't I do it? Because the simple thing is we realize that all these difficulties, whatever it is, you know, injustice or whatever difficulties, it was created 
by our mind contact attending in that way, by changing it, you can change it. But the thing is, saying it is one thing, trying to achieve it is another whole nother thing. So there are other things that we need to do sometimes. So what is necessary, what happens to most of us, why we become overwhelmed by these things is, do you agree that most of us in the modern world, especially, are really very tired? When our mind is really tired, our mental energy level is quite down, right? I can't even see anybody smiling here. Is it because of your sleepy after the life? <laughs> That's great. Always nice to get to smile. <laughs> How different do you feel even if you just smile or laugh a little bit? It uplifts the mind, right? You feel like you can do something. But when you're just down, especially when you're overwhelmed by something, that's how it is. You can't even get up. You don't even want to, you know, have a cup of tea. That's how you feel like your energy is so down. So, you know, then you have to see where you are at and take baby steps. So I myself do this. So you were saying, you know, we've been practicing. No, sometimes even the monastics, we can, depends on the situation, depends on our health level of practice and intensity of whatever the circumstances, it can be, we could also be <laughs> down on the ground at times. So how do you lift up ourselves is to be recognized where we are at. Okay, reach out for a friend, ask for a hug, ask for a chat, ask for some advice, go for a walk. Best thing, have a cup of tea. Coffee might be a bit too much maybe, or have a nice other drink. <laughs> Depends, I'm just suggesting, saying that sometimes you got to just change your focus from your really big problem because you can't directly address it. But our thing is when we have it, we want to indulge. That's actually the word. We like to indulge in our suffering, believe it or not. And that is why we are in samsara, because we like to suffer. <laughs> Do you agree or disagree? <laughs> right? So that's why we keep thinking about our problem and we keep going down. So at that, it is important to just recognize, I might find a solution, but if I keep entertaining this in this way, I'm only going down and down to this bottomless abyss. That is what suffering is like, you know? So therefore, when you recognize that, reach out for some help. See whether you can help yourself, which level you are at. Can you go for a walk by yourself? Have a cup of tea uh, or go, go and help somebody else. Put a smile on somebody else's uh, face. Sometimes you can't do that even. So a good way that I find out whether I'm able or not is I wake up and see whether I can smile. There are days I too wake up and see that I can't smile. Then I know, oh, oh I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, what's going on? I need to maybe, you know, do something about this. So this is a good sign. If you can't put a smile on your face, that's a good sign that you have some things going on and you might need help. But other days you can. Then you know to take baby steps. And then you build up the other side before you tackle with your overwhelming problem. So you build up some mental energy by the wholesome qualities, yeah? Generosity, the opening of your heart, making somebody else happy and bring up that joy level. And once you have that energy of the mind, then you can take perspective, understand what's happening. Then you can build up all the Brahma Viharas, whatever it is, once your energy level is up. Otherwise I too have felt really guilty saying, I should have compassion. I should have metta. Why can't I bring it up? I'm a nun. I've been a nun for so long. But there are times you can't. Your energy level is so low because maybe you were sick or you had so much to do or that the impact of what happened to you is so intense. So then you've got to have a break. Take little baby steps. That's why dana, generosity, is the first starting point. It builds up your heart, builds up your energy level, and then you are able to do something. The techniques we already know. Is that wow. okay? Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Karunika. And it brings together, oh, thank you for, for build, building that bridge for us. And um, we've just got two questions from the audience and one kind of resonates with the question that I'd asked. Um, I hope it, there's some, I'll, I'll read it out so that 
you all know what the question is. So it's it's very hard to rec reconcile the misery arisen with people um, like Adolf Hitler and Putin and Donald Trump and so on. How can we approach the conflicting emotions of compassion towards such people? And I'm wondering if perhaps what you've just shared there, Aya, of, um, you know, the, the, those principles of um, generosity and, and reaching out to other people. It makes me think of in, the work of engaged Buddhism. Um, we had Aya Yeshe, I'm not sure if she's still with us, but her, or if she's outside um, and her amazing um, Bodhicitta um, monastery and the, and the kind of work that she does and the and social action that we can take as well to come together and um, address the problems of the world. Um, and utilising and drawing from the Dharma and the deep teachings. Um, I'll stop talking there. <laughs> Bhante, as Sanata Bihari, love, I'd love to hear more from you. Um, just any reflection so far? Um, yeah, over to you. Yes, uh, thank you. So like in these kind of uh, very extreme examples of like Hitler and other very nefarious characters, we have to remember that their actions arose to causes and conditions too, right? So there was a certain environment and there were certain causes and conditions that led them to uh, go down this path. And many people during that time uh, in Germany went down the same path because due to those causes and conditions and you know, if the causes and conditions were different, they would have chosen an alternative path. And I think we'd be surprised how many of us, if we were born at that time, at that place, some of us might have also chosen that more uh, unskillful, unwholesome path too, you know? So if we begin to understand how the environment and how um, the time and place and how these different things construct and create these kind of uh, very unskillful actions, you know, we begin to see it in an impersonal, depersonalized way we can kind of create some space and within that space is where we can kind of shove in that compassion and loving kindness, right. And stick it in that kind of space that we built where we're not like reifying or really creating this solid image of like, Oh, this is a really evil person or a really bad person, like concentrating all that evilness into a, into a being. And instead of kind of break it down and, and see it as a series of, of unskillful actions. And that kind of gives us some space, you know? And I think you know, even me with all my years of practice, and I'm sure that many of the venerables, when we think about these atrocities, it's difficult, it's painful, like, it's it's not something that can easily, easily be uh, overcome. And we also there was where the self-compassion comes in again, right? When we see ourselves maybe getting angry or upset at, at the people who perpetrated these crimes, or maybe we begin to judge ourselves, like, why am I angry at this person? I should be a good Buddhist, like, I shouldn't be judgmental. Well, you know, we've also uh, been conditioned and we also uh, are naturally going to feel this way when we face these kind of very difficult situations. But I also like to bring it back to the previous question about like, what do we use when we're confronted with these difficult situations? Like I find a lot of times the practice becomes very like reactionary, like there's anger. Now I'm going to use this or there's sadness. Now I'm going to use this. But I like to think about the Dhamma more as like preventative care, right? So like, let's not wait until something happens for us to pull out some gadget out of our Buddhist tool belt, right? Like from the moment that we wake up, let's set an intention, like let's gather our attention. Let's develop skillful states of mind. So we already have that with us out in the world. We carry it with us. And when we're confronted by difficult situations, we have this beautiful resource, right? This uh, this this resilience that we carry with us in the Dhamma. So we shouldn't think of like Buddhism as just like a quick fix, an instant fix to our problems, but more as a way of being, right? And a way of, 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 of carrying these skillful qualities to protect us and use it as a shield, you know, out in the world to protect our mind from when we are confronted with these difficult situations. So this is kind of my invitation instead of like, you know, trying to react to unskillful situations, just kind of like as soon as you wake up, already built this abundance and, and wealth of, of skillfulness and wholesome states that you carry with you to protect you out when you go in the world. Wow, <laughs> that's so inspiring. Thank you so much, um, Bante. Um, I think that's that's excellent. I love the visual of, um, you know, the Buddhist sort of tool, toolkit and shield that we, we can draw from. 
Um, with a great question from the audience. What is the key difference between skillfully taking responsibility for our suffering and the individualistic approach of today's self-help capitalist philosophy? Um, Ajahn, Ms. Arana, would you like to <laughs> respond? I'm, uh, yeah. No, that's a, can you read that question again? Sort of... Sure, I think it's, there's a real nuance here. What is the difference between this skill, skillfully taking responsibility for our suffering mm -hmm. and, you know, our culture of individualism and individualistic self-help, which is per perpetuated through capitalism, our capitalist consumerist culture? Mm. Right, yes, yes. I think uh, my take on this would be that we are, you know, a lot of our lives reinforcing the sense of I, me, my, my suffering, my home, my partner, uh, my misery, all this sort of thing. And I think this individualistic uh, society emphasising the, uh, the idea of self, of, of this uh, person that exists, uh, is permanently existing. I always like to say to people when they hear about Anatta, most people say, can't relate to that, thank you. <laughs> but I always, my takeaway from it is there is something there, personality, character, it's not permanent, it's changing. And we see it with ourselves, we see it with our friends, we see it with a lot of other people. So it's it's something that uh, we, we that is really reinforced uh, in our society. So I just like the Dhamma um, is to, to see what the process that's going on, the I, me and mine that's being perpetrated all the time and realising what we get out of that. What we get out of that? Feeling isolated, feeling threatened, feeling anxious, feeling frightened, all these things feeling a lack of connections. And this is where the Brahma Viharas that Venerable Sanata Vihari so eloquently talked about is so important. The Dhamma is something that becomes comes alive when it starts to filter and uh, colour the way we see the world, the way we react to the world. And this is where the power of the Dhamma is working. Instead of the power of our conditioning from the society we live in, the time we live in, um, and all the values that go with that, which are not necessarily coming from Dhamma. So I think very beautifully put by Venerable Sanata Bihari, we, we, uh, we look at developing these positive qualities. And when we do develop these positive qualities, it's the Buddha calls it right effort, actually. And we can maintain that in our lives. This is, it becomes part of our character and personality. It's not something we have to try and put on or, or think even like in the tool, uh, the, uh, the, tool, the tool belt, getting out the, the appropriate tool. You know, it's, it's something that will be part of our character and be a response. And uh, so this is what I, I would feel would, would be the uh, appropriate way of dealing with this the influences of our society, which is pushing us in one direction. Um, and this is not necessarily the direction of Dhamma, but to develop these positive qualities and keep, keep them going and really, really connect with them. So that when we do get into these difficult situations, Icarinic is talking about, it's true that sometimes we get into situations that are just way out of our control and we, and, and we lose it. No problem, no problem. The Buddha's teaching is not about um, always being on top of the situation or pretending we are. It's learning about our reactions and learning, as Aya Karunika very, very solidly put it, what we're paying attention to, how we're paying attention to things, noticing what reactions are coming up in our mind, learning from it. So this Dhamma is is very much a, a learning process and uh, something to be investigated. So I hope um, I hope that sort of contributed something to that question. There we are. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Thank Letty. Thank you so much, Ajahn Nasarano, for bravely taking that on. 
Um, and maybe just sort of leading on from that question, um, you know, uh, and your response, you know, when we're, when we're trying to practice strongly with, um, you know, the idea that we are responsible for our own suffering, that we are responsible for, for the cessation of craving and that kind of depth of, of practice, how can we know that our practice is developed enough to take that on? Because um, it's also easy to sort of spiritually bypass our own, our own pain. Um, so, so just to rephrase, how can we know when we are ready um, to take up the depth of that teaching? I am responsible for my own suffering. Hi, Karunika, could, could I put you on the spot? Sure. For me, always I start with my ability to smile or not. <laughs> actually shows whether my, my the state of my mind, right? How much joy, how much energy I have. Because these things vary until you become at least the first stage of enlightenment. When you're stable, when you have your spiritual faculties established, that is where it is. But for a vast majority of us, these things go up and down. We have our good times and not so good times, powerful times, and not so powerful times. So for me, how peaceful I feel, how happy and joyful I feel internally, that's a good gauge to see. And the best thing is never to be afraid to make mistakes. So you give it a try, you give your best try. If it works, great. If it doesn't, well, you try. Try again, never give up. <laughs> Bhante Sujatavan <laughs> said, Persistence and perseverance is the way to go. Can I say a joke because it's kind of after lunch a little bit? Not a joke, it's a real story. When I saw Bante after he came back from his Sutta translations, because before he went, he was quite a skinny, tall monk. <laughs> and when he came back, he's put on quite a bit of weight. But he only had a tiny little ball. But I was being sarcastic. I asked him, Bante, how did you manage to lose so much weight eating out of such a big bowl? <laughs> and he said, persistence and perseverance. But this was just a joke. But, you know, for anything, if we fail, we try. We keep putting in time. Because the Buddha said, bhavana bahulikata. So doing that simple things, like being kind to somebody else, kind to yourself, you know, bringing up a smile, giving a compliment, small little things, doing again and again, bringing up your energy levels and building up more and more. Then you realize, well, I might be ready now. I don't know. This is this is my approach anyway. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. That's beautiful. Thank you. I love oh, that. I've got to remember that. <laughs> Can I just say a comment that uh, just came up while I was uh, listening to you, Aya, and I think... We know when we're ready for insight, when the mind is ready. It's not a matter of us being ready. It's not like, well, tomorrow's Wednesday. Four noble truths, here I come. <laughs> I'm ready for you. It's not going to be like that. It's when we actually attend to um, seeing that this isn't my misery, seeing this is, as the first noble truth says, this is suffering, this is misery, not my misery looking at it and then going into it deeply. That can happen any day. It could happen, you know, now. It can happen anywhere, anytime. When the mind is right, when the wisdom is developed, when the understanding of the Buddha's teachings is there, because he's really pointing us in a direction. But when, it, when the opportune moment comes, that's what they often call it, <laughs> that will be the time we're ready. We won't know about it. There won't be any announcement. Oh, uh, tomorrow is going to be Four Noble Truths Day or anything like that. It's going to be when the mind is ready. And the way we can get develop this readiness of the mind is, of course, through developing the five factors that the Buddha mentions. First of all, you know, having this faith and confidence, having developing good ethical conduct, developing learnings, you know, just understanding the Buddha's teachings in some depth, developing generosity and then developing with these five factors the day will come when the mind is ready and it will happen suddenly wow 
This is what it's all about. And we will see, we will not only see dukkha, because of course, this suffering is, is the important thing to see, the cause is important to see, but also to see that there never was a, a me, a mine, a myself here. This isn't my suffering. This isn't my craving. This is craving. This is suffering. Then the mind can let go when it no longer owns it. But that's really deep. And that will happen when the mind is ready. Not when we're ready. <laughs> that we may never be ready, but the mind may be ready. When it's got that, those five factors uh, cued, as it were, they've developed, they've matured. So that would be my response. And I think, um, you know, thank you very much for that question. I think interesting. <laughs> Wow, that's so inspiring to to really hear the depth of um, where the where the practice can take us. This is not my suffering. Wow. Um, we have a question from the audience um, for Venerable Sanata Bahari, and I think it builds on what you're what you were just sharing, Ajahn Nisarano. Um, the topic um, summary of this panel. Oh, and thanks for yes, thanks for referring to the. Um, the topic summary of the panel, which is on the Meta Center website. Um, and we haven't gone there yet. So thank you for whoever wrote this question, um, is that we actually have a misunderstanding of what the Brahma Viharas, of the Brahma Viharas. And um, Venerable Bhante Sanata Vihari, are you, are you willing and able to, <laughs> of course you're able to, but are you willing to discuss what is the misunderstanding um, that we have of the Brahma Viharas? Oh, yeah, I think one of them that comes to mind is the one that I struggled with in the beginning, that I thought it was just about feeling good, you know, like, oh, this is just like a positive uh, sunshine and rainbows kind of practice. It's not a serious practice. And uh, so that's one of the misunderstandings, I think it kind of gets uh, kind of relegated to this kind of like, second practice or it's not that important or it's for like people who are very woo-woo and things like that when it's what it's really not about that it's really a development of selflessness right instead of focusing only on me myself and I you begin to consider others other beings not only humans but all beings right so you begin to like loosen up the self it's not complete selflessness but you begin to loosen up the self and it might be an easier way for some people right that are kind of drawn to this kind of like empathic connection to other beings you know you can draw upon these resources about these connections you have with your family members to begin to disentangle yourself right so i really see the practice of the brahma viharas as like a step towards selflessness not complete selflessness but it does help you reach that state by beginning to loosen up yourself stop focusing only on me myself and i and begin to uh, focus on other beings right and it also develops a very fertile mind uh, for insight, right? The mind becomes very calm, very rich, very joyful, very pleasant. It becomes happy, sukha, right? And and, and it, it reaches equanimity, upeka too. So it uh, it becomes a very fertile field for insight. So uh, I mean, I think that's some of the some of like the insights about the Brahma Viharas, how we we can kind of see it and kind of like debunking this kind of like oh, it's just kind of like a woo woo soft, you know, hugs and hugs and cuddles kind of practice, and it's not a real serious practice. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ante. Absolutely. Um, very, very deep practices. Um, and looping back, <laughs> so going backwards and forwards and covering some of the, the same territory with the questions. Um, but, you know, I guess the Buddha asked, um, we have a question from the audience that said, I experience righteous outrage sometimes when I see injustice. I use this outrage to try to make change, but I still feel dark from the anger. I don't want to be passive either. How do I deal with the anger? So I um, know that loops back to earlier conversations, but just wondering, um, you know, uh, if anyone wanted to build on, on what they've maybe shared before about, about responding to anger or something new. I, th I, would, I would just share that, of course, righteous anger is still anger, and that's why this person experiences these dark um, mind states. And whether the, the righteous anger, you know, a lot of activists, I remember um, many years ago uh, when I was involved with a Quaker group, 
one of the older Quakers, Mary, said to me, we've got some peace activists staying at uh, the Quaker uh, meeting house. And she said, and you know, they're the most unpeaceful people <laughs> she met because they were so angry about and so stirred up righteously, you know, about the, the issues that they were facing. And I think this is a very natural response to an injustice. I absolutely agree that it is, but it isn't actually a, a creative response to those situations. It isn't a response that will give rise to good results because anger will always give rise to negative results. And it's very, very hard not to buy into this self-righteous anger. And I use that word self-righteous very uh, deliberately because there's a lot of self in that when we're righteous, righteously angry. There is a lot of self. We feel absolutely, you know, empowered. And it's a, I think just going on the feeling level, I would say to this person, go on the feeling level, you can feel it's dark, it's heavy. <laughs> it's something that I shouldn't necessarily cultivate. And this is one of the messages I really emphasize for people. Attend whatever we attend to in the world if it's giving rise to negative responses, a lot of desire, a lot of greed, a lot of anger, a lot of delusion, a lot of these negative qualities, don't go there. Recognize that don't attend to it um, because it's not for your happiness and make the mind and create the very fertile conditions for bad actions, bad speech, <laughs> and even more mental bad actions, you know, of getting, winding ourselves up uh, with, uh, with this, this energy that we get. This is the, the big trap of righteous anger. It gives energy, but it's not a constructive energy. That's what I would say. Not to criticise this person, but this is part of the practice to see what it's doing. And you're obviously seeing that it's a dark, uh, it's still a dark energy. And I think that's that's quite insightful and gives you sort of the mm, uh, ability to, to think, do I want to go there? Is this helpful? Is this useful uh, in, for this cause, this issue? So I think that that, that is something that uh, is really good for practice. <laughs> this is where I said, as before, Dukkha, is a, as Ayakima mentioned, is our best teacher. And this is teaching you, you know, this situation. What is wholesome, as Venerable uh, Sanata Vihari points out, this is deep wisdom. What is wholesome? What's unwholesome? What's positive? What's negative? If we knew, the world wouldn't be like it is. <laughs> Most people don't know, don't have a clue. And so this is something we can see the warning signs. When I tend to this, with this, uh, this uh, these injustices in this way, it's not it's bringing up anger. How can I attend in a different way? How can I look at it in a different way that doesn't bring up a lot of anger, maybe with some compassion for the people who are suffering or whatever? So that's 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 the response that I I um, I, I, I feel coming coming in response to that question. It's a really good question and uh, something that many activists run on the energy. Uh, self-righteousness so thank you for that Betty and that thank you so much Ajahn Nasarano and we're reaching the end of um a panel discussion it's been phenomenal and it's so rich and important and thank you for taking us through the depths of you know like the real pain and suffering in our lives and and injustice and many people have raised and and then right up to you know the fruits of the practice and um and the ways that we can get there. And I just wanted to quickly see if each of the venerables would like to offer any concluding thoughts, or um, you know, as we wrap up this discussion. Um, maybe Aya Karunika, like would you like to? Oh, sorry, Bante, please go ahead. Yeah, like our responsibility, right? Like who's responsible for our misery? You know, one of the things that really attracted me to the Dhamma was responsibility. 
You know, who's responsible for my happiness? Well, I am. That means I don't have to wait on someone else, on some other being, on some external force for my own well-being. Like I'm empowered by this, right? Responsibility is to be empowered. You get to choose. Like you have the power to be happy. You have the power to be free. So yes, I mean, we can focus on the other side, the weight of the responsibility. But to me, it was so freeing. Like, wow, it's all up to me. Like, I don't have to wait for anyone, right? I don't have to get anyone's permission or anything like that. I can be happy if I want to be happy. I can be free from suffering if I want to. So responsibility has two sides, right? And we can also focus on the other side, the positive side, which is like, yes, you can choose. Like, yes, you have the ability to be free, to be happy. And that was like what really drew me to the Dhamma. I can be free from suffering through my own means. I don't need to wait for the Buddha to come and free me. I can free myself. Well, well said. Thank you so much. Hi, Kernika. The only thing that I could add uh, to the last bit is um, also just seeing in whenever these emotions come up, uh, the suffering that is inherent and how unskillful it is and how we can't achieve anything useful with when we have the, these negative emotions. Because what we want is to do something about it, right? We want to achieve something, but we know we fail every time if we are overcome with anger, sadness, worry, anxiety, we can't really achieve anything. So again and again, when I see that, then if I really truly want to make a difference to myself or to the other person, or even to be on top of everything, which is what most of us want to be in that occasion, then seeing the benefit of first calming myself down using whatever technique that is available and you are able to do, then taking some action is more helpful than just entertaining this negative emotion again and again, and as a result, suffer more and more, and it is, I who go down and it's dangerous at the cost of others. It's not worth it. So whenever I see that, I am more and more encouraged not to go that way. Like our conditioning pulls us that way. We like to indulge ourselves in these kind of negative emotions, but after a while you see it's very dangerous and it's really dangerous to myself. So when I see that, I'm more and more motivated to take actions in the right direction. That's all I have to say. Beautiful. Thank you. And always uh, to assess where we are on the smile, Amida. <laughs> Thank you so much, <laughs> Karunika. And um, Ajahn Nisarano, any concluding thoughts from you? Yes, yes. I, I would like to conclude with a, where I started is to look at really the causes for our difficulties in life and problems. This is something that's very useful in in tackling them in in, in being having sufficient distance to be able to step back and, and see what's going on so i would encourage that to to actually look at causes that are uh, creating our misery this is of course the second noble truth but also to have use these brahma viharas in a, a really important way the way we relate to ourselves, relating with uh, kindness and friendliness matter. In times when we're experiencing great difficulties, relating with compassion, with caring. And I think one of the things I often bring up in those times, I Karunika, is a self-hug. I think of hugging uh, myself in the mind or having a big hug or something like that. And also the other aspects of the Brahma Viharas, having this joy with the successes in my life, the good qualities that are in my life, and having the equanimity, what I call acceptance of the cause of situations that have just gone out of, out of control, they're just there, can't, can't do anything about them. Understanding with acceptance, acceptance of myself, acceptance of others. So this is a very important for me takeaway is how we use the Brahma Viharas to relate to ourselves and to relate to the mind, because this is what we are in the Buddhist teaching is really developing the mind. That's the treasure. That's the thing that is giving, giving rise to our experience in daily life, whether it be pleasant, unpleasant, full of anxiety, fear, uh, trepidation or whether it's it's beautiful or 
um, interesting or uh, insightful. It will all depend on our mind states that we develop. This is where the treasure is developed. And I'd like to just finish with one point that Venerable uh, uh, Sanata Vihari made. This practice of the Brahma Viharas, the four sublime abodes, or the four supreme emotions, as Ayakema would call them, is a practice that can take us to the end of the path, too. It's a practice that takes us to the liberation of the mind, Chetavamuti, when the mind is just completely metta, completely karuna, completely uh, mudita, completely upeka. And then coming from that, reflecting on that experience as caused, as conditioned, as impermanent, uh, then the breakthrough can happen uh, for full enlightenment, for the first, well, for any of the stages of enlightenment, really. So it's a complete practice and something that can liberate us as well, not just a fluffy toy emotion <laughs> or a soft toy emotion, that's what we call. I think Venerable um, Sanata Vihari calls it woo-woo. I think that must be Americanism, but I, I, I got, the, got the meaning. Many people think there's something, you know, like uh, fluffy and soft and so forth, but it goes a long, long way. So it's got a great liberating potential for us. So thank you very much for this opportunity and to, to meet all the panelists. And nice to see I Karunika again. And thank you, Leti. Oh, thank you so much, Ajahn. It's our no, what an electrifying way to end the session and a real call to and inspiration for enlightenment and the freedom liberation from suffering. Um, please, uh, everyone join us in thanking our esteemed panelists for this wonderful discussion. And thank you as well for your great questions. Thank you.